Stay hungry, stay foolish. The Innovation Show is proudly brought to you by Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services and powering its customers by making innovative financial services accessible to all. You can check them out on hellozai.com. Yeah. Okay. Toys R Us, Kodak, Blockbuster. Why is it that some companies evolve while others get left in the dust? How do they lose their relevance and their customers? The scary truth is that the only thing harder than getting to the top is staying there. It may sound counterintuitive, but in many cases, it is the success of a company that eventually leads to its downfall. So what does it take to stay competitive and relevant when what customers went wild for yesterday is the boring banal bare minimum they'll accept today? Through the story of the rise and plateau of a gym franchise recounted as a novel, today's book shows exactly what most companies reaching the peak of their potential lose their curiosity and crash into irrelevance. From how we develop blind spots about our business to the pitfalls of feeling like an expert, this thought-provoking, engaging tale reveals smokescreens obscuring imminent threats to long-term viability and walks us through specific ways to boost innovation, uncover customer needs, solve problems, create new value for customers, and increase employee engagement. Most importantly, today's book demonstrates why curiosity is your greatest asset, driving constant innovation and improvement and helps you ask the essential questions that will take your business from stagnant to soaring. It's a great pleasure to welcome the author of The Curiosity Muscle, how four simple questions can uncover powerful insights and exponential growth. Diana Kander, welcome to the show. Aiden, thank you so very much. It's so great to have you on the show. We have been planning this for such a long time. And I have to let our audience know as well, I, I mentioned you in my book, because it was one of the conversations you had in there, my curiosity. Uh, and it was also by the way, to give him credit, former guest on the show, a guy, you know, Barry O'Reilly, who said you got to check out Diana Kander's podcast, where you interviewed Ian Freed, the Amazon guy. So curiosity was at the source of that. So thank you for that. I do. I do mention that in the book as well. And I do reference your podcast as well. Thank um, you so it, very much. Before we get into the yeah. show at all today, where can people find that podcast? Because it's excellent. My podcast has been innovating and going through several iterations. It's actually like been rebranded over the last year as the Growth League, where I interview female executives in large organizations to pull out their rules for growth and mental models for success. But uh, we're working hard to still in the same feed, allow you to access the old um, archived episodes where I did an entire season where I interviewed like my favorite failure stories from organizations. It is a weird, obsessive hobby of mine. <laughs> There's so much to be learned from the failures, though, isn't that the, the real success? That was the point about that interview you did with Ian Freed as well, that there's assets in the ashes is what the term that we both used. Yeah, absolutely. And if you know, a lot of people will look at a failure and be like, Oh, that's too bad for them. But if you really understand the story, you'll see that even though Amazon lost $170 million making that fire phone, and were embarrassed, you know, they were supposed to replace all phones, and they couldn't sell it, they shut it down within six months. 
the assets that they got from developing that technology has made like has made that 170 million dollars feel like absolutely nothing. So they're very good at not just, you know, forgetting about a failure and never talking about it again, which is what happens in most organizations. My advice to our audience is check out that podcast as well. I'll link to that podcast as well. I got so much from that interview as well. And then I subsequently got in touch with Ian Freed through LinkedIn as well. So thank you for that, Diana. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into today's show because I'm going to start off. I thought the way to talk about today's show, it's it's, a, it's quite a different one. And it was really useful for me. I found I was challenged by it at the start, because usually we'd cover books on frameworks and innovation and case studies. But this was written almost in a third party way. As you say, jokingly in the book as well, you and your co author, Andy, hope to maybe get a Netflix movie out of this as well someday or a series. I thought of it like a superstore, you know, that show that you could actually do this ongoing innovation show uh, with this gym franchise. But a, a really interesting way to pr pr uh, project many of the concepts, particularly of of curiosity. And Diana for our audience also wrote another New York Times bestselling book, also called and, and this one is called the all in startup which details conversations on entrepreneurs need to have with their customers in order to get true insights as well. One of the things with the all in startup was the questions that people asked were non biased. So you weren't leading questions, you're trying to get true insights from your customers, yeah. for example. Yeah, I mean, the same is true in the curiosity muscle, both books kind of detail different kinds of conversation. In the first one, it's like when you're launching new products and services. And in the second, it's when you have an existing company, and you're trying to reconnect with your customers, how do you get them to tell you the truth? Because, you know, most people lie, that is uh, an unfortunate fact of talking to your customers, they're trying to be nice, they're trying to give you information that they think you want to hear. And so it's a real task to get them to tell you the truth. And I love the way you bring that into this book as well, the curiosity muscle, which we'll get to in a little while. But I thought a really useful way to showcase this book would be to start off with the principles of the book. And then maybe I'll pull some excerpts from the book as well. So for those people, we won't give do the book justice in a podcast like this. So what I'll try and do is give a spine of the book through some of the lessons that I derive from it. Uh, and then you can go and get a copy of the book and actually read the book through those experiences. But you start the book in the introduction with a great quote from that company again, from Amazon, but this time it's from Jeff Bezos. Do you say Bezos or Bezos, by the way? <laughs> Me too. And people are like, Oh, no, it's Bezos. And I was like, I thought it was Bezos. Anyway, but but the, the quote goes as follows, customers are always beautifully, wonderfully dissatisfied, even when they report being happy and business is great. Even when they don't know it yet, customers want something better. And you add here, if we want to stay competitive in today's fast changing economy, we'd better figure out a way to consistently find blind spots in our business because feeling like an expert is comforting. And that is what makes it so addictive as a state of mind. Maybe we'll use that as a way to tee up the book. Absolutely. So, you know, it's important to tell your listeners that we're leaving out all the sexual tension that makes the book fun to read. Yeah, that's the uh, spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down, as I as I like to think. 
I love that quote because I think that most of us operate just in our daily lives thinking that no news is good news. You know, like when our customers are not calling to complain, then that means we're doing everything well. And my biggest goal is to shift that thinking that if you're not hearing feedback that is surprising and potentially a little bit painful, then you should be scared in your office. You should be sweating bullets because that means that you are developing blind spots that are causing a rift between you and your customers. And the way to see this early start of the podcast here is lenses through which to read the book or to hear the book today, what we're going to talk about, because you talk about the curse of expertise that I mentioned there in the intro, you say blind spots are not the same as weaknesses because you can see your weaknesses. In fact, the trouble with blind spots is that they can hide in broad daylight, disguised as parts of your business you think are thriving, but have grown woefully inadequate. And by the way, I really like the way in the book that you use that for the plank as well for somebody doing the plank is like you need feedback, you need somebody telling you honest truth about that. Yeah, if you're trying to do something that you've never done before, and you know, growing your company to the next level counts as one of those things, then there are blind spots that you have that you aren't aware of and uncovering them is the fastest route to growth. I'll give you a silly little example, but I'm a keynote speaker is my favorite job. And you know, I have a list of things I think will get me better. And one time it was writing more jokes. I hired a friend who was a stand-up comedian and I was like, hey, can you help me write some jokes for my speech? And so she watched me present, do a whole hour, took a lot of notes. And as soon as I stopped, she was like, wow, uh, you are horrible at breathing. And I was like, oh, is that, is that the first joke? Because I, I do not get that joke. And she was like, no, you, uh, you don't know how to breathe correctly. And I was like, I don't know. You know, I've been breathing a pretty long time. I feel like I got that down. Maybe you could just help me with what I asked for. And she was like, do you ever feel like you're going to pass out on stage? And I said, yes, I do get dizzy when I'm up there. And she said, do you ever lose your voice? And I said, I lose my voice after every speech. I feel like that's a professional speaker thing. And she was like, no, you are breathing wrong. And I was like, okay, well, let's talk about the jokes. And she goes, is that how you walk on stage? And I was like, what? what's wrong with how I walk? She's like, it's very apologetic the way you walk. And I was like, oh my God. I said, do you have any jokes on your piece of paper? <laughs> and she said, well, honestly, no, because you do this weird thing with your eyes that I just called googly eyes, which is so distracting from anything that you say that all, honestly, I wrote on my piece of paper was googly eyes over and over again. And <laughs> I'm looking for it now. I'm looking for it. <laughs> no, I fixed it. I fixed it because somebody shared it with me, you know, and that's the way blind spots work. Like you think you have a to-do list that's going to get you to where you want to go. And there's this other list of things you aren't even aware of that's going to get you to that goal faster. Like even if I had written the best jokes to go into my keynote, Nobody would have heard them because of my apologetic walking and my googly eyes if I even made it through the end of the speech without passing out. So, you know, uncovering those blind spots, that was my big aha. Like that is the way to grow much faster in your organization. Brilliant. I'm going to ask our audience, please tell me if I do any of those, anything that you annoy you. And I've, I've said this before to people. One person uh, said, I, I use a similar anecdote over and over. So please, I am totally open for for our feedback. It's so useful. So Can I say something about please, that? Please, please. 
So a lot of people say that a lot of people say like, please, if you have any feedback for me, give it to me. And that's like saying I have an open door policy, but you have to understand like the amount of motivation and momentum that a person needs to like write you a letter and just like the ickiness that feels inside that they have to overcome. So if you want to uncover those blind spots, unfortunately, you have to do more than say you have an open door. You have to seek out people who could give you critical feedback and you don't have to do it all the time. Like I like to do it at least once a year. I think that's a good cadence for a lot of organizations, but you have to seek out blind spots. People aren't just going to come, you know, get in your face with them. It's so funny because actually uh, Whitney Johnson, who you know as well, Whitney's been on the show a couple of times and she was so instrumental in feedback from my book. She gave me really critical feedback and she said she actually wondered about it and she wrote it in a blog and she anonymized me. But I was like, oh, you know what? It's totally fine. That's because I, I will write about that in the future for sure. I'm writing a book at the moment and that is in there because it was so useful. She saw things I couldn't see. But she had the bravery then to actually come forward to me. And instead of it damaging our relationship, it strengthened it. And, and she said, that's what was unusual, that most people would take it as a criticism. And the fact that I embraced it was actually what the win was for both of us. Yeah, you have to think about and you're clearly doing this, the pain that comes from that feedback as similar to the pain that you get when you're exercising it's making you better and stronger in the long run. Like if you're doing exercise, right, it is very uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, like, and it's pu pushing you beyond what you think you can do, but you're doing it because it's making your lungs stronger. It's making your muscles stronger. And that's what feedback can do for you. It's funny, isn't it though? Because sometimes when you do ask for that feedback, people can mistake it for a lack of confidence, but actually what you're trying to do is actually get the competitive edge. And this is something you say in the book in the early parts, you say, it is a competitive advantage to have curiosity. And the companies that have survived and continue to innovate are the curious companies. Maybe we'll say a bit on that before we go into it more. Absolutely. Most organizations innovate by looking at what their competitors are doing. And when you focus on what competitors are doing, you miss what's shifting with the customer. And so the companies that are growing the fastest and feel like a startup, even though they're 20 or 30 years old, they never take their eye off the customer. They have certain systems and processes in place to have a voice of the customer program that provides that surprising feedback you're never going to get any surprises by looking at what competitors are doing and their actions might be working or they might not be. So keeping your eye on your customer will, will get you the best ideas. You mentioned there like curiosity is like a muscle that you need to keep toned and that if you don't use it on a regular basis or don't seek out the feedback, it atrophies. And there's a brilliant quote by Walt Disney that's about imagination. He said, every child is blessed with a vivid imagination but just as a muscle grows flabby with disuse, so the bright imagination of a child pales in later years if he or she ceases to exercise it. And the reason I, I share that is I noticed this with children. M my son, we were talking before we came on air, you've children, I've children, and we both have an eight-year-old. My eight-year-old, when he was younger, came back from school one day and we were, <laughs> we were doing his colouring in. And he's like, Dad, you color that piece. And I was like, you're the one coloring, you color. And he's like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. I don't. What if I go outside the lines? And I was like, of course, you're going to go outside the lines. If I do it, I go outside the lines. And I was like, where is that coming from? 
and it, it, it turned out that he was under pressure from a teacher in school not to go outside the lines. And I was like, kind of going, if we do that to our children in those early stages, we're ruining them later on because they got to make mistakes in order to learn. Aiden, I, I just read this brilliant piece of research that I've put into my keynotes about this very topic. So in 1968, NASA went to these two researchers and they said, how do we find the most innovative people in our organizations? Can you design some sort of test? And so they came up with this simple test that worked so well for them to find the most innovative people in NASA. They were like, let's take it into the broader population. Let's test children, you know, and see what happens. So the test is this, it's how many uses can you think of for a paperclip? So the average person can think of 10 to 15 different uses for a paperclip. Somebody on a genius level of innovation can think of 200 reasons or 200 things that they can do with a paperclip. And they went out and they tested 1600 children at the, at five years old, 98% of them were ranking at genius levels of innovation. Right. And then they were like, okay, well, let's test these kids. Let's do a longitudinal study. Let's test these kids again, five years later. Now they're 10 year old kids. The numbers of geniuses drops to 30%. Oh my gosh, a huge drop in those, those very pivotal years between kindergarten and when they're 10 years old, right? Where, where we have kids right now. Then they test them five years later at 15. Now they're down to 12%. So they said, okay, let's test some adults, you know, people like you and me, Aiden. And at our levels, 2% of us test at the same level of genius for creativity, innovation, divergent thinking, thinking outside the box. And that means that we are all born with this skill set. But because we don't use it, we allow it to atrophy and waste away. But the good news is we can all get it back, right? By making a system and a process out of how we add curiosity to our lives. And this is what I love about the book, because you actually, you intertwine all these principles into the book really, really well through the story. And there's four main questions that you propose. And I thought rather than throw them up now, I'll get them in later on, because there's a key point in which in the book that you, 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 pro you propose those questions. And I'll, I'll stick them in there because I, I want our audience to hear a little bit of the story in order to see how you pepper it. And it's brilliantly done, by the way, it must have been quite a difficult thing to do. But the book centers around the f a familiar but fictional story of Galati Fitness and the newly demoted John, a former director of innovation, and now he's been redeployed as a gym manager for their first gym, Ground Zero, or Zero as it's known. And it tr transpires to link it back to the filters we discussed just now, the filters of curiosity, etc. And John's brother has been made the CEO of this business. And he sends John out to do field research, or so that's what it seems to be. But it, really what he's doing is trying to get him closer to the customer. And I love the term here. I don't know if you, you didn't make a big deal of this, but I absolutely love this term. Because in the military, they call it battlefield circulation. This is getting out in the field and seeing what's actually going on with the customer or with the soldier in the case of the military. But this is a key, key aspect of both books that you've written. Yes, you have to be in close contact with the customer. And the trouble is, the more, um, you know, senior you get in an organization, the further and further you get away from the customer. So one of my favorite quotes um, 
from an executive is that customer feedback is the breakfast of champions. You know, like that's what you should be consuming on an everyday, like direct quotes from customers in whatever area you're trying to improve on. So if, if you want like impetus, if you want ideas for growth, the most successful ideas are going to come from the field rather than you brainstorming in an executive office that's, you know, miles and miles away. Many of our audience, Diana, are, head, are heads of innovation or heads of transformation in organizations. And usually they're locked away a little bit from the field, from the customer. And the interface to the customer is usually frontline staff or sales teams, but there's no communication oftentimes between the innovation team and those people. And that's what's really, really broken. And I wanted to pull an excerpt here because this really rang true to me. You said, this is where John is having an exchange with his brother, Roland, who is younger, by the way, to add to the Shakespearean drama of the whole story. I got that absolutely. And Roland says to John, John's the guy in the field, John, look, it just wasn't working. You tried a number of innovation projects, the employee suggestion contest, the loyalty app, the body scanner, we even spent a fortune on delivering home fitness classes. None of the ideas were bringing in the return on investment. They weren't making us any money. It's been three years, Roland, says John. This kind of stuff takes time, it takes investment. We made investments, God damn it, John. <laughs> None of them worked. I'm sorry, but I don't think you're going to come up with the next big idea. Technology is putting new stresses on our business in a major way. We're in a mature industry, and there's more pressure than ever on me to figure out how to grow revenues. And the objective becomes cutting costs, not investing in transformational business. And as you say in the book, this can start with listening to the customer but actually driven by curiosity. Yeah, so I don't just write business fiction. I also do innovation consulting. And I'm just not allowed to write about any of the case studies of companies that I've worked with. I'm under very strict confidentiality agreements, but I can write a mushing of all of those experiences in a fictional story where nobody knows exactly what I'm writing about. So every single conversation in the book is one that I have witnessed personally. And so that's why they feel so real, you know, because they happen in organizations all the time. And that three years is a very magic number, Aiden. The typical lifespan for an innovation program is three years, whether it's a chief innovation officer position or an innovation team or some kind of initiative. Usually, Around year two, they start questioning what it is that you've produced. And by year three, most of these programs are done. And that's another point that you make in the book. So a key character is Kelsey, and Kelsey runs the data analytics department in Galati Fitness. But her department becomes under pressure, despite her constantly uncovering real metrics that are important metrics. But the organization, through cognitive dissonance or blind spots don't want to actually hear the truth. And there's this kind of interchange between her and the marketing department. Marketing wants to take the top glossy facts that validate all the experiments that they're running or the marketing campaigns they're running. But Kelsey's frustrated and she wants to tell the truth. Nobody wants to listen to her. Yeah, I think, you know, as an innovation consultant, I always thought that I was coming in with the big ideas. And what I found was, they exist inside of an organization. Organizations are filled with people who have identified issues and things to work on. But because 
not only are we not hearing direct comments from customers, we have created organizations where people are afraid or silenced to share that kind of information. And so we stifle powerful opportunities for growth. Another key character, I'll, I'll just I'll just pepper these characters here because it won't make sense, but I'd love to use them as a way to spark your thoughts about the real experiences you've had from an innovation, being an innovation consultant. One of these key characters is Sam. So Sam is this lady who's an ex- a successful entrepreneur, sold her business, and also is an angel investor. And she's also extremely well read. But essentially, she's you, right? <laughs> so she, she has this way of connecting with the customer of running focus groups, debiasing the questions. So she's not leading the questions. She's not trying to get the answers she wants. And she trains essentially John, who's the guy who's sent out on the field research work. He tries to run a focus group. It's a disaster because he's leading all the questions. He's not truly listening. Sam then gives him a clip behind the ear, <laughs> sorts him out, and he starts asking proper questions. This is such an important thing for innovators and people who run innovation is to actually listen to the customer, not try to come up with what they think is best for the business. Maya Culpa, by the way, as a head of innovation in the past, I've done that because you're looking for some small wins. And you try to create those small wins from a glass department that's totally disconnected from the business and kind of go, look, a loyalty app, it's essentially a digitized version of the punch, the piece of paper that you used to have. And it's like, ta-da! And everybody's like, that's great, lipstick on a pig, great. But getting down into these focus groups and listening to the true voice of the customer is, if that's all you did, if that all the lesson you took from this book, it's absolutely essential. Yeah, I think what you're saying is so important. It's not holding the focus group, right? Like you can trick yourself into thinking you check the box, but it's holding uh, one that gets you real feedback. And the life experience that really made me want to write about this is I once worked with somebody who was the head of product for this company. They held three focus groups before they launched a product. And every single one of the focus groups, people came back and they were like, yes, this is a great product. And then they launched the product and no one bought it, including any of the participants of the focus groups. Like they had their contact information. And so they called me trying to figure out what happened and what they missed. And then once we started breaking down the actual questions asked in the focus group, it became abundantly clear. And sometimes they were a simple, the questions were like, do you love this? Like on a scale of one to 10, how much do you love this? Would you prefer it in red or blue? And so the questions didn't give them, like they communicated so much. That's so important to understand. If you communicate to the people you're interviewing, what it is you're hoping to hear from them, then they'll give you exactly what you want. And so you actually have to trick them into not knowing what the right answer is in order to be able to seek out the truth. It's an absolutely such a, a core point. One of the mistakes I made in the back in the past was I developed a, an app, a radio app for a radio group and asked on a survey, if we did this in the app, would you use it? You know, got enough responses to kind of validate. It's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's build it. And what we could have done, I found it in, in retrospect, was actually put a button in there, saw how many people clicked on the button, perhaps in the menu, and then actually went, okay, we need to build this thing. And that kind of validation, small experiments, 
is absolutely core. We'll come back to the small experiments because that's that's really important. But back to the focus group. There was a really important point you made in that focus group is that it needs to almost hurt. It's almost like feedback, like feedback hurts sometimes because you're kind of going, I thought I was killing it. It turns out I'm not. But would you rather go on with that cognitive dissonance knowing you're actually failing? And there's a point here where john goes through multiple feedback sessions where not only does he go and listen to the customer, but he listens to disgruntled employees, he goes and seeks them out. And he says, after all this, when he's asked how he felt, he said, oof, rubbing his right temple. It might have taken a few years off my life, but I have to hand it to you. This was Sam who told him to do it. You know what it was. It was bittersweet. Bitter because I heard all the stories that the old Galati Fitness, the way it used to be, why they fell in love with the business and sweet because it was kind of inspiring to think that a gym can mean so much to people. I thought that was a key point because feedback isn't doesn't always end with a happy story, but it can spark your imagination and spark your curiosity. Look, I think a lot of us have mistaken beliefs about how right we are, how often we are correct, you know, and People who study decision making, like the science of how good we are at making decisions, will say that at the peak of your expertise in your field, you're making the wrong decision about 50% of the time, Aiden. That's like, to me, a mind blowing percentage, right? And what that means you're making the wrong decision is um, it's either the opposite of the right decision or it could have been much better. And the reason that happens is because you don't have all the information when you make your decision. Sometimes the ground shifts underneath us, you know, like COVID just changed a lot of things and a lot of decisions that would have been good became bad. And so once you understand that and you walk around knowing that 50% of your daily decisions are wrong, now you start thinking, well, which ones? Like, let me figure out which ones aren't working so that I can fix them and iterate much faster. And that needs to be your mindset going into these conversations, not like, oh, my God, I hope they say this is a good idea. My job depends on this. But let me figure out the 50 percent wrong. And when they tell me I'm going to do a little dance in my head because I know it's not going to, you know, hit me like a dump truck. I'm going to be able to fix it before I spend all this money building the wrong thing. And there's a, a key point here, here you say about this feedback loop, you say if you aren't surprised by the responses when you ask for feedback, then you aren't being curious. You aren't really learning anything new about what's going on with your customers, you'll never discover their truths. And that goes back to the Bezos quote we said earlier on. But the example you give here, which this is Sam speaking again in the book is Blockbuster. Yeah, so Blockbuster is one of the best examples you know, they had the opportunity to buy Netflix for $50 million. Like, what an unbelievable opportunity. And their executives turned it down very confidently, said, no, thank you. And they said the reason was because they did surveys of their customers and they knew their customers and their customers loved the in-store experience. They loved browsing through the shelves. They loved discovering new movies. They loved bumping into their neighbors. And what they, that was all true. But what the surveys didn't show are these huge glaring blind spots, which people hated about Blockbuster, which was their late fees. And they made so much money from the late fees. Like they knew there was something there, but they didn't question just how bad that was of a problem that they ignored it. And they ignored it 
for like seven or eight years while Netflix was in operation, while Netflix was losing money. And the year that Blockbuster finally decided to stop their late fees was the year that Netflix became profitable. And at that point, it was too late. And at the point where most companies realize they've made an error and they've missed the boat, it's it's too late to change. And so being open to those blind spots before they can hurt you can can have significant growth opportunities for a company. The, the positive example you give was Domino's. And, uh, you know, you talk about Sa Sam being an investor early in Domino's. I was like kind of hoping that was you. <laughs> I wish. They're, they are my favorite um, corporate innovator. I, I love Domino's Pizza because they've been able to grow their stock from like $350 a share in 2010 to like $500 a share, like something crazy now. And they don't sell anything other than pizza eating. It's not like they started coming up with new, you know, technology. They sell pizza. They just found a way to sell a lot more pizza by using this thesis in the book that customers are always dissatisfied with something and they're going to seek out what they call these moments of friction in their customers' lives, in their customers' experience with them, and they're going to fix those moments and then tell the customers about it. And so if you think about Domino's advertising that you see on TV, it rarely features a pizza. It's usually about what the company is doing to like simplify your life and allowing you to order the pizza in an easier way. They have an app that you don't even have to click anything. You just open the app and it orders your pizza if you don't hit a button within 10 seconds. Like they're trying to remove all friction from, from the process. And that's why they're so successful in their growth. Let's bring it back to the book then as well, to the tale of the fitness franchise. So it was founded by Mr. G Galati, this man who, and he comes back to ground zero to his first gym. He can't believe it. He's been so far removed from the business because he had become so successful. He'd probably spread himself too thin and then he locked himself away in the ivory tower. But he says when he walks into the gym, this place is a leaky bucket. I can smell it. They are increasing prices instead of loyalty. They're charging more for everything they can and hiding it behind shiny promotions. And I thought about that as what we see sometimes in airlines, what we see as the example you give in movie theaters, for example, where everything's broken into, everything's atomized, but you pay for all the atoms and you're kind of going, wait a second, I used to get a way better deal when it was all a bundle in the first place. This is another key point that you see in so many businesses. I mean, I had a front row seat to watching this. Like over here, we have customer complaints, which are like very low hanging fruit. And over here, we can do absolutely nothing about that and just raise the prices a little bit and see if they complain. And that, that I feel is like a Jenga tower. You know, like that's only going to work long, like up to a certain point, at which point you're going to be in, in big trouble because the amount you're charging is so far removed from the value that your customers perceive. One of the other points then was the when John goes out and seeks feedback from disgruntled employees, people who had left the business as well as people who'd stayed. And he goes and finds like a guy who'd gone out and set up his own business. And again, like the focus group, the initial responses to the answers are kind of kind of guarded. 
they don't want to tell the truth because they're kind of going, what's in it for me if I actually bother? And, and actually, I have this sometimes, sometimes people ask for feedback, and you're kind of going, do they actually want the feedback? Or are they just being kind of humble? I don't know. And then you kind of dig a bit deeper, and you find out they're just being humble, and they don't want the feedback. And you're kind of going, it's not worth it. Or as I say to my own children, you really give feedback when you care about the person, it's a sign of care, or it's a sign of of wanting to actually make them better. And John then asks some of the, the former employees, and he finds out that they are actually the link to the customer. And they may actually say things about the gym and badmouth the gym. And actually bad and this happened to me when I was in New York, I, I was working in New York for a few months, a uh, few years back. And many times the taxi drivers would actually almost usher you towards which one to take. So they're like, don't use Uber again, use Lyft, because they treat us much better. And they they look after us and you're kind of going, okay, because that's the interface. And in this case, it was the gym instructors. So let me give a shout out to my co-author, Andy Fromm, who's the CEO of this incredible company called Service Management Group. And they do customer satisfaction surveys and employee satisfaction surveys for the largest Fortune 500 companies. They do over 100 million surveys every year between customers and employees. And then they have a lot of data scientists that cross-reference the data. And the biggest takeaway from all the research that they've done is that your customer experience will never outpace your employee experience. So if you're the kind of company that's like, let's put everything into making our customers satisfied and you have all these disgruntled employees over here, it's never going to work. Your customer experience will never be better than your employee experience. So if you want to affect how customers are perceiving your business, you have to invest in how employees feel. It reminded me of a brilliant quote by Richard Branson, and I'm sure this was an influence behind either Andy or yourself. He said, clients do not come first, employees come first. If you take care of your employees, they will in turn take care of your customers or your clients. And that really jumped to mind because, again, what happened was decisions, back to the point we made earlier on, were being made up in HQ, totally disjointed and disconnected from what was happening in the field. And it was like, for example, we want you all to use tablets to start to take surveys or to try and upsell the client to more products or more services within the business. Me as the gym instructor, I just I was doing this to try and get people in shape and have better lives. Now I feel like I'm working for as an administrator, it's ruining me. But on top of that, my whole compensation had been changed because you decided to do something different up there. And this was driven by John, who was the head of innovation. Yeah, and they're forcing the employees to sell products because, you know, somebody at corporate was like, we should sell more products, you know, but they don't understand how much damage it's doing to the employee customer relationship because now the employee feels gross about it and they have to push products and the customer feels gross about it because they feel like they're just being sold to and they just don't understand what they're doing to tear apart the most fundamental fabric of trust that is, you know, the source of where corporate trust, like loyalty, growth, revenue, profit comes from. And so having that direct tie to your employees and having them tell you the surprising feedback about what it is that your programs are doing, um, it, 
would be huge. I, I worked in an organization once that had a huge retail presence where uh, employees would write thank you notes to customers and corporate headquarters stopped paying for the postage and the postcards. And they were like, this is an area we can cut. And the employees were like, gosh, I really enjoyed doing that for customers. And do you know how customers felt when they got that? And it's just, you know, like somebody who's doing the math is like, why I don't see the ROI of these feelings of good, you know? And, and, but those are the magic that you're destroying piece by piece inside of an organization. We also have so many terrible stories about that. One of the things I used to do was buy a book for customers. I was always a reader. Well, in the last decade, anyway, and I'd when I'd find a book that would somebody would say something, I go, Oh, have you read such and such? And they'd go, No, and I go, I'll get you a copy. And my employer stopped letting me do that. So I was like, had to pay for it myself. So it created this kind of like, I can't believe you're so petty over something so small. That was one thing. And then in another organization I worked in, I had a team. And at Christmas time, I brought the team out for a meal. And then I got them all a gift. And again, CFO comes down and kind of goes, Oh, you should have authorized bringing them getting them a gift and a meal. And I was like, kind of going, Are you kidding me? Like the such a small thing to do for your team. And these things made me actually leave both organizations. And I just, I just don't understand how small minded so many people are. And in, in the second case, the organization was quite small. So the touch point to the organization wasn't far removed. It was just somebody deciding, actually, here's a, here's a small way to cut prices. And this is a key point in the book as well, where the organization's trying to cut prices all the time, they start to cut, they look at one stage to actually automate one of the most important parts of the fitness thing, which is the instructor, where they had a 3D, a, a virtual version of the instructor. Yeah, in, in my business, I'm going in the other direction. I just hired a position that doesn't exist in most companies, and that's a relationship manager. It is a human being that I'm paying money to help me send presents to other people who are valuable relationships in my business. So that's like the opposite, the extreme opposite in the other direction. And let's see which approach works better. You know, the, the, the one where you cut off all of your love and connection to important relationships with your customers or the one where you invest in them. And that's, that's my bet that these inexplicable, these, these tiny little moments where you show appreciation and care, they build much stronger foundations for long-term relationships. Absolutely. And it's so much more important and particularly because we're more and more digitally connected, but we need more humanity, more human touch, essentially, even if it's through digital as well. But I want to bring it back to something that happened because many of our listeners will have experienced this. So your organization gets bought by a bigger organization. And they kind of look at the inefficiencies and kind of go, we'll lean it out, we'll fix the inefficiencies, again, doing this from an ivory tower where you're not in touch with what's actually going on. And the reality, the map is not the territory. And you say here, the new management team was just not curious enough about the customers they inherited. They just assumed they were buying the customers when they bought the company. They thought they were really smart, smart enough to know what people wanted, what they needed. But the thing is, human beings are delightfully irrational. It's pretty hard to guess what they want or don't want, especially if you never ask them. 
I think that uh, most of us in our daily lives make assumptions that we got somebody. We have an email list, like we own those people, you know, we have a customer base, but in reality, the way that the world is going, like you have to earn that on a daily basis. And the, the best example I can give you is like the cell phone companies that used to give better deals for new customers than existing customers. And you know, when the cost of switching was high, that worked. But now that it's super easy to port your number and leave, it doesn't work because existing customers are like, I can't get the better deal. You're taking advantage of me to get new people. I'm going to leave. And now you can see the cell phone companies advertising like, hey, uh, anybody can get this deal. Existing customers, new customers, they think that that is an advantage. <laughs> and maybe it is over the other cell companies. But that is just table stakes. Like you have to treat everybody fairly and like you have to earn their business on a regular basis. And if you take them for granted, they will leave. There's a great quote that again was sparked to my imagination from reading the book. And it's by Heraclitus, 544 BC, Greek philosopher. He said, no man ever walks in the same river twice because he's not the same river and he's not the same man. So Baird, the language was very masculine. We know that in 544 BC, it didn't change for a very long time, I have to say, it still hasn't changed that much. But the point is that the river is constantly in flux, so are you as the person. And this is absolutely core to what you say in the book, because you talk about a successful business and you say they recommitted to their customers and learned their tension points, like we, like we were doing it for the first time, essentially. And you say, see, people change their expectations change, their frustrations change. Solving one problem usually means you just graduate to a new one. So this brings us beautifully, as I said earlier on, to the four essential curiosity questions that we have to answer every year to uncover unmet customer needs and frustrations. I thought this was extremely well placed in the book and something that we could bring to our audience now. Absolutely. I, I just, I do want to say one last thing about how people change, you know, and to the point where they can't go back. And I don't know if you, you have a rear view camera in your car, Aiden. I, when I, you know, for the first 15, 20 years of my driving, I did not have a rear view camera. I've had one now for a couple of years. And when I get into a car that doesn't have one, I'm like, here goes nothing. I'm just going to go back. Like, I don't even remember how it works. And to me, that is like the best analogy for how we are in life. Like once we become accustomed to a certain way that a company treats us, that's the expectation for everything. We don't even know how to function in the previous land. And because there's such a mushing of consumer companies and B2B companies, B2B customers have consumer level, Amazon level expectations of their B2B services, which are irrational. But that is the bar that we have to meet in today's market. So this brings us beautifully to the four questions. And the four curiosity questions are, and they'll require some explanation, perhaps you'll expand on them, but I'll give them at a high level. So number one is what are our blind spots? Number two, are we prioritizing the right things? Number three, what can we test? And four, how can we engage others? Perhaps you'll bring us through those four questions. Well, I feel like we've covered blind spots. Are we prioritizing on the most important? You know, I think that most people make an assumption again about being right a lot. And they similarly think that whatever they do at work is of value. And that is an incorrect assumption. 
you know, if you think about like some of the things you do at work, take more time and effort to do than the value that they produce at work. And I call those zombie projects. Like they don't die of natural causes. They, they're just kind of barely alive, sucking the resources and life out of your organization. And zombie projects are the largest source of corporate waste in today's organizations. And they, they're what, um, feel like you're just not getting enough done. It's because you're not actually creating value. You're spending time on stuff that doesn't matter. And so how do you find, how do you make sure you focus your time on things that actually create value for your customers and for your organization? Um, The third question, what can we test? What kind of experiments can we run? Is we all have ideas of what can move the company forward. And a lot of times it's either like the highest opinion in the room wins, or we just don't do anything. And so rather than exposing the company to a lot of risk, you know, this is covered so often on your show, how can we come up with some tiny way, just like you talked about um, with with a product that you launched, like what kind of tiny thing can we use to test whether this is going to be worth the next investment milestone? And finally, Who can we involve? Like, how can you involve your employees and your staff in the innovation process? Because they're going to feel invested. Uh, They're going to feel a sense of ownership over the ideas that you come up with. And they're going to help you come up with better ideas because they're the closest people to the customer. Um, And like, that's, that's what you want in your employees for them to feel like the ideas aren't just raining down from corporate headquarters, which is detached but like they were involved in the process of figuring out where the company's going next. I, I got this as well. And, and this shows your depth of experience as a consultant in innovation is oftentimes there's a battle between the innovation team and the legacy organization. So the innovation team that think these are laggards and they won't wake out of it and there's blind spots all over the place. There are, but equally the legacy organizations looking at the innovation team going to go, what's the ROI on their projects? It's actually just lipstick on a pig or rearranging the desk chairs on the Titanic. And I decided this week as I was reading your book to meet somebody not involved at all in innovation, but somebody who's an absolute innovation skeptic in a bank. And I met him and I said, I'd love to hear, and this guy is, this guy brings in the majority of the bank's income, very, very successful in his role. He's a rainmaker for this bank. And I asked him, what does he think of the innovation team? And he goes, oh, so it was, it was driven by your book. So thank you. And I sat and I went, I'm, I'm, I have to be careful of drinking my own Kool-Aid here. Because if I'm talking about the challenge that it is bringing innovation or transformation or change into any organization, I need to meet the other side and listen without judgment, without leading the questions or without and de-biasing as much as possible as I can. And I just listened to him and he told me, you know, they're bragging about this and this app and this project and all. And I'm going to go and looking through my Excel sheet going, oh, what's the ROI in that? What's the ROI in that? Nothing. And here I am bringing in all this money. And that's where the bank makes money to pay for all your toys that are just marketing innovation, innovation theater. And that's a key point because you talk about this in the book as well. John this guy, the main character in the book, if you want to call him that, was absolutely guilty of that. And we need, as heads of innovation, as change managers, 
to actually look in the mirror and kind of go, are we guilty of that ourselves? Yeah, I think that's the number one thing for most innovation teams is to eat your own dog food, not just go around telling everybody else what they're doing wrong, but to collect your own surprising feedback and work on whether the initiatives you're launching are zombies or actually creating value inside the organization. And that is oftentimes like a really tough pill to swallow for most teams because you feel all that pressure to show that you're creating value. And so you're doing a really good PR marketing job, you know, but can you actually take a step back and measure the non-vanity metrics to see if if these initiatives are having an impact? Because one of the things on the non the non-vanity metrics, so the oftentimes we're guilty of that as well in change roles where it's so difficult to get a win that sometimes you'll just go, I just got to get this project over the line to show I have a project. And we need to check ourselves sometimes and kind of go, but is it adding value? Is it actually useful? Is it useful for the customer? Is it just not so I can have it on a board pack and go, look, we did this project tick. That's a real difficult. I'm sure you've seen that in a lot of your work as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the hardest. You're fighting against really strong human instincts, you know, for, for everybody. And I like to eat my own dog food as much as possible. So I like to make myself uncomfortable and do difficult things to, you know, help myself feel what it feels like inside organizations. And even though I'm no longer launching $100 million software projects, uh, I get the same amount of pain and frustration when uh, now I'm over 40 and attempting, attempting to do the splits for the first time in my life, Aiden. So like just doing things that feel impossible, you know, I encounter that I have to go through the same four questions as when I was helping people launch hundred million dollar software products. You know, what are the blind spots? Like, what don't you know about the product? How can you focus your time on the most useful things to get to the end goal? What kind of tiny experiments can you run and who else can you get involved to, to get across the finish line, to hold yourself accountable. And a couple of more points that I thought were really relevant that I, I derived from the book. And there's loads, there's loads of kind of aha moments where you kind of go, oh, I like what she did there. And Andy did as well. There was one where Mr. Galati, so the guy, the founder again of the business, gets back involved. So he's no longer really in the boardroom. He's just a majority shareholder. And he gets back and he goes, you're ruining my business, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So we, we've seen that actually play out. It happened in Best Buy, for example, that Hubert Jolie told us about on the show before. It happens often. But what he was very guilty of was confirmation bias. So he went with a hypothesis that the customers were rejecting the way that they were being sold to all the time. And then he sought out that answer everywhere. And this is a really difficult thing for us to do as well this confirmation bias which we've talked about before but maybe you'd expand on that because particularly for him because he was the beginner he was the he was the beginner's mind at one stage but he forgot that beginner's mind later on so uh, you know the science of how this works Aiden is that every second your brain gets 11 million bits of pieces of information like coming at you like your your every sense is is coming in hot you're your conscious brain can only process 40 to 50 of them a second. So we got to find a way to narrow down 11 million to 40 to 50 pieces of information. And so your brain just kind of focuses on what's important and usually like 
feeling like you're right, like you're doing a good job, that's important. And so it it fights off everything that doesn't confirm that. And that's how confirmation bias works. You know, you got to look at the bright side. Like if you were accepting input of all 11 million bits of information, you would be in the fetal position in a corner. It would be too much, you know? So like, thank you for the filtering that we're doing. But you have to say to your filter, I also want information that says I'm wrong because it's natural default is only to give you information that you are correct. And even though I've seen this, like huge red flags, um, your brain will not hear it, will not process it. And my favorite example of this is there's this reality TV show where they go interview entrepreneurs. And uh, this one guy was selling this product to hair salons and he went inside and he kept saying like, you could sell these to customers. And they were like, no, we're not really interested. They're like, we'll buy four and we'll use them. They're cool. And he's like, but also you could sell them to customers. And they were like, no, no, I don't think so because we're a hair salon. We don't sell these kinds of products, but we'll take four, you know? And so anyway, he has this long conversation. He walks out, he's talking to the producers and he says, that was amazing. They said they were going to try to sell them to customers. And I've never seen this on a reality show before. The cameraman was like, no, they, no, they didn't. And that's like, that's your confirmation bias at work. When you're so excited, when you're so passionate about an idea, you literally hear like different information than what's happening in reality. And so one of the things that I advise people to do is bring a buddy who doesn't care to these conversations and just see if they're hearing what you're hearing because your version of reality could be very skewed. And for anybody who has a spouse, like, you know, that there are two very different sides of what just happened in a conversation. I was just gonna say, I, I just bring my wife along. And <laughs> so she she still says people actually listen to you on the show, really. I, um, but actually, the the confirmation bias one is so important to seek out, particularly in social media, because the algorithms, the filter bubble, and, you know, just seeing information that validates I, I actually have a few different browsers. And I refresh the browsers, it's a pain in the ass to delete cookies and have to log in again. But it's interesting the way your sources change your information sources change as well. And the other thing to your point, I really try and limit the sources of information and the amount of information I consume, because I want to focus on information that's fresh and information that's not driven by an algorithm. And I think that's a real challenge in society today, and for our children as well, is to find information that's not playing towards their confirmation biases. I, I have this one fun thing that I do that I recommend to others, and I do it in my personal life, and I do it at work. If I encounter a piece of information that I'm like, whoa, that is amazing, I immediately go to like, but is it true? Like, th that fact sounds so great, let me just try to do some digging. And I oftentimes disprove like all of these firmly held beliefs. For instance, um, you know, like <laughs> a silly one. Do you know that you've heard that Michael Jordan was cut from his basketball team in high school? Not true. You know, like all of these stories, like, wow, that's an amazing story. He was cut from his basketball team. And I hear that piece of information and think like that sounds sensational. Like, let me just dig and find out what happened. But I do the same thing in my work. Somebody comes back and they're like, our employee satisfaction scores are 99%. I'm like, really? Let me go do some interviews. And 
see what people think. And then I hear conversations like, oh yeah, we're not honest on those. Like we're, our managers get them and just yell at us. So we've stopped being honest on any of those surveys long ago. So when you encounter a piece of information that you love, try to fight the urge to love it so hard and see if you can find evidence to the contrary. And I think that's the best way to fight that confirmation bias instinct. Have you heard of the Mandela effect? No, please tell me. You'll love this because it's exactly, so the Mandela effect is where people believe that an event occurred when it actually didn't happen at all. And it was named after Nelson Mandela. A researcher, a lady called Boone, wrote, uh, created a website where she said it wasn't a tragedy that Man Mandela died in prison in the 80s. And Mandela didn't die till 2013. And people believed that he died in prison in the 80s and what a disaster it was. And it was exact, she was trying to prove this by creating a website. And it, same with you, I do it all the time when I'm reading. And I've got some stuff wrong. And, and I'll go back and I go, Oh, my God, I was so wrong with uh, what I wrote before. And I'll go back and I'll fix it because I like I don't want to add to the problem that was there in the first place. But it's, it's called the Mandela effect. Really fascinating, the biases that we go through. There's one last piece. Diana, I, I thought was really important. And it, it kind of ties back to the idea of what can you test? Because it, as a innovator or not, you don't even have to be an innovator here, you can just be a CEO, or have a small organization or one person a consultant trying to test something different in the marketplace. And I thought it was really interesting how that happened in the story. So again, John gathers the closest part of his team. So it's a chain of gyms just to explain to our audience, John gets the trainers from his gym, which had been the worst performing, ask them what could they do to test and they start testing and they create all of a sudden out of all the red lines of all the underperforming gyms, they become the green. And this whole idea of becoming something others become jealous of it is so important innovation that it's easier to sell a success than it is to sell an idea. And I thought that was a really core point that perhaps you'd expand upon and a way to close today's show. Yeah, you know, I'm working on a new book about a new way to pitch that is memorable and actionable. Like I think it's going to change the way that people present in B2B pitches. And I don't just want to go into organizations and try to convince them that I'm right. My entire plan is to say, like, give me one team and I will show you what this team can do compared to everybody else. So I, I don't want to convince everybody. I just want uh, to get a much easier experiment that's easier to sell, but can really. But what that means is you're okay with being vulnerable of whether it's going to work or not. That's how you know that you're running a true experiment. Like it could go horribly wrong, right? Like you could be wrong. And in most organizations, you know, they pride themselves on the fact that 90% of their pilots are successful. And yet if you ask like how many percent, what percent of the products you launch are successful, it's actually like a much, much lower number. So be very concerned if a huge percentage of your experiments are successful, that's not how it's supposed to work statistically. And, and try to run something that you're actually very nervous if it's going to work or not. Like that's a good test. Uh, so for me, that that's what I think about, not how do I convince everybody because maybe they're right. 
but what's a little thing that I can do to see if I'm right or they're right? Like I'm very open to being wrong. And I think that is the uh, origin of really rigorous objective testing. Wonderful. And Diana, for people who want to find you, we talked about your podcast again. Let's remind them, where can they find you for keynotes, for consulting, for trying out that test? Give give Diana a team and she'll turn them around. Where can they find you? So dianacander.com is my website and it's at Diana Kander on every social media platform. I'd love to connect with your listeners on LinkedIn and or any other social media you know, platform to hear what they got out of the episode. Author of The Curiosity Muscle, How Four Simple Questions Can Uncover Powerful Insights and Exponential Growth. Diana Kander, thank you for joining us. Aiden, thank you so very much. Thanks as always to our sponsor, Zai. Zai helps businesses manage multiple payment workflows and move funds so they can pay and get paid without delays. You can find out more about Zai at hellozai.com.